guys. Welcome to episode three of your morning legal briefing. We're super excited to be kicking off today's episode of your favorite legal news and pop culture podcast sponsored by Hampton and Hampton LLP. You have three attorneys originally from Chicago, two of which are now transplants in Alpharetta, Georgia. Our first host is Nikki Kane from Chicago, Illinois. Good morning. It's Nikki Kane, your favorite public health attorney. Our second host is Halil Hampton, originally from Chicago, but now a resident of Alpharetta, Georgia. Good morning, podcast world. Attorney Halil Hampton here. Happy to be here. And last but not least, you have myself, your show's executive producer, also a current resident of Alpharetta, Georgia, Sylvia Kulan Hampton, your favorite real estate and estate planning attorney. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the $1.8 billion jury verdict that was just awarded against the National Association of Realtors and some of the recent celebrity Ponzi schemes that have graced national headlines the past few weeks. So let's get started. Recently, as of October 31st, a Missouri jury has handed down a landmark ruling against the National Association of Realtors and several large residential brokerages, including Keller Williams, for violating federal antitrust laws and artificially inflating commissions. As part of the complaint, plaintiffs brought a class action lawsuit on behalf of sellers who listed properties on one of the four MLS services between 2015 and the present. In the complaint, plaintiffs alleged NARS and other defendants conspired to require home sellers to pay buyer's brokerage commission fees at an inflated amount resulting in an adversary commission rule. Because NARS conditions its membership on the implementation of a rule that requires sellers listing agents to pay buyer broker commissions, which is typically a commission fee split unless negotiated otherwise when listing properties on the MLS. According to the complaint, if this rule were not in place, then the cost of the buyer's broker's commission when selling a house would be paid by the buyer, not the seller, forcing buyer's brokers to compete by offering a lower commission. This adversary commission rule, according to the plaintiffs, violates federal antitrust rules, including the Sherman Act, because home sellers have been forced to pay buyer broker's commissions at an inflated price, which ultimately, according to the plaintiffs, results in a tying agreement that links the sale of two distinct services while making the purchase of one contingent upon the purchase of another with no competitive effects. So Nikki, do you want to start it off? What are your thoughts on the verdict and should buyers, brokers, commissions be tied to sellers listing agreements? You know, Sylvia, I'm really glad that you told me that this would be the topic of today's show. It gave me an opportunity to do the surface level dive into how the home buying uh, process looks for most Americans. And right now, I do believe that perhaps this was the correct decision. When we talk about NAR, you're talking about the National Association of Realtors, and they control MLS. That's the multiple listing service. I purchased a home. You guys have purchased several properties. Oftentimes, when you buy a home, enter to a contract with the realtor, and then they use the MLS 
to find properties that fit whatever parameters you've expressed to that realtor. So in order to have your property listed on the MLS, which means that this is the main tool that people use to purchase homes, you have to enter into a contract with the realtor. Those realtors often come with built-in set percentages, which would be the commission that would be split between the buyer's agent and the seller's agent. And for mine, I look back, it was 6%. For most people, it's often 6%. So that's built in and the buyer or the seller really wouldn't have a lot of control over that variable. And it's really unfair to sellers these days because right now we're in a tough real estate market and buyers are competing for properties. So why should a seller be required to forego a mandatory 6% of the profits from the sale of their home to list it on the MLS to make that property available to most people? When really, if buyers are competing for properties, the onus really should be on the buyer to find the agent who can find the property for them. The buyer's agent maybe shouldn't be entitled to an automatic 3% of or half of whatever that seller's commission is. Really, I think this verdict is about shifting control back into the market. I don't know long-term how that's going to affect the real estate market. Maybe we'll see more of these FISBO type of properties for sale by owner where people will feel like I'll just forego the MLS because it's not really giving me any benefit. There's no skip to it anymore. So I think this is really a move to put control back into the hands of consumers. And I hope it winds up being a net positive. Okay. And Halil, what are your thoughts on the verdict? And do you think that this will have a, a negative impact on the real estate market if buyers, brokers exit the market? And home buyers are forced to forego professional help during these real estate closings? Yeah. So the plaintiffs, their position was essentially that sellers shouldn't be forced to pay for the buyer's commissions, that buyer's agents don't work for the sellers. And so therefore, they shouldn't have to pay for those commissions the way the NAR is set up. National Association of Realtors have set up the listing agreements. In order to get on the MLS, you have to enter into these listing agreements. And so that's the antitrust and uh, arguments there. And then the defendant's uh, position, the real estate brokerages and the NAR, is that these commissions are negotiable, that the buyer's agent is vital to the process and even to the seller because they're actually bringing that buyer to the table. So it's a mutual beneficial relationship and that these are transparent listing agreements and that all parties understand what they're entering into before they sign them. And so those are two positions there. Just briefly, I know Remax and Anywhere Real Estate, they actually settled before trial for $140 million. So they saw where this was headed and got out. But NAR, Keller Williams and Home Services Company, they took it to trial, so they were hit with that $1.8 billion. I think that buyer's agents are very important in a real estate transaction. That when somebody's buying a house, that's usually their most important purchase they'll ever make. And so you want to be informed when you're making that level of a purchase. And usually the buyer's agent's job is uh, to advise the buyer 
on uh, the purchase, on the real estate. If they're doing a walkthrough with that buyer, they're pointing out certain things that the buyer might not see, leakage or maybe structural issues that a a regular person is not going to see, but the buyer's agent, because they're proficient in real estate, they'll notice that. But if this rule sticks, if the seller is no longer required to pay that, then the buyer is going to probably elect in a lot of instances not to use a buyer's agent because they're going to say, well, I'm already struggling to come up with the down payment and closing costs. So if I could save a few thousand on a buyer's agent, I'll just look online, find a place and I'll buy it. And so I think you're going to see less involvement with the buyer's agents, possibly if this sticks. And I think that in the long term, that's going to be detrimental to buyers. I do agree that the buyer's agent is bringing that buyer to the table. And so the seller is benefiting. So if the two parties have agreed to this, if the seller's in agreement with that, then I think there's no benefit to the seller in it. So I think any situation, if it's going to lessen buyer's agent's involvement, I think that's going to hurt the buyer in the long run. So I would like to see some sort of compromise, but I do also understand the other argument that why is the seller paying for a buyer's agent commission? They're paying their agent. So why do I have to pay both unless I choose to? So I think it's a monumental ruling. It's worth stating that despite the ruling, the judgment coming out, that clause in these contracts is still going to be there. The judge didn't find that clause had to be removed. I think there's an injunction petition pending and that issue will be decided. But as of now, it's still the buyer-seller agent split. We'll see how long that stays in place. So that's my overall take. I think buyers and agents do play an important role in real estate transactions. And so I'd hate to see a situation where buyers are out here on their own because they're trying to save a couple bucks. A lot of times it's more than a couple, a few thousand bucks. But I think when you're making a purchase that significant, it's worth the uh, cost. And Halil, before we move on, I know you mentioned that this stuff, I read earlier today that earlier this year, a judge on the Seventh Circuit, a federal judge, did certify a class action to move forward in Illinois. It was a case of Christopher Merle versus the NAR, the National Association of Realtors, for this similar issue. In the Missouri case, to your point, Nikki, in the Missouri case, the attorney for the plaintiffs was a Michael Ketchmark. So he's getting his percentage out of that 1.8. But and then from what I understand, as soon as they got the verdict, the same day he filed another case against some additional real estate companies, brokerage companies. So that Illinois case, probably you're going to see other law firms and attorneys picking up these cases across the nation because that NAR listing agreement requirement is a nationwide thing. So you're going to have that Illinois case and probably everywhere else. So NAR is anticipating the uh, appeal. They feel confident that on appeal that they'll have a better chance of success. And so whether that's just talk or if that's a real thing, we'll find out. But there was some talk that they didn't present all of their strongest arguments in this Missouri trial 
because they felt that this venue wasn't going to necessarily rule in their favor. So they uh, held back their strongest points, possibly for other cases across the nation. Whether that's true or not, we'll see. But yeah, I agree that these cases are going to start popping up. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. And to piggyback on your point, Nikki, you were pro-plaintiff as far as the belief that if NAR's adversary commission rule were not in place, then that cost of the buyer-broker commission would be paid by the buyers and the buyer's brokers would have to compete for a lower commission. The problem with that is that we have heard from some realtors, and it'll be interesting to see what the bottom line effect of this ruling is going to be. If you were to take out that buyer's broker's commission, it may not lower costs. What may happen is that the seller's listing agents will just instead of this magical sharing of that commission with the buyer, that entire cost would just be kept by the listing agent. And that isn't necessarily a a cost that would be passed on to the consumer. So it'll be interesting to see if this, in fact, actually does lower costs or if we're going to have a situation whereby buyers are viewing houses not represented by a real estate agent and they're still not seeing discounts being passed on to them. So it'll be interesting to see what the bottom line effects of this is really going to be. And yes, I do agree with Halil that buyer's brokers are definitely needed in a real estate transaction from a business perspective and also to be able to provide those industry comps when viewing a house, even if ultimately their commission structure changes or becomes something entirely different as a result of this ruling. Yes, for sure. Well, today's topics have definitely been interesting. To end our podcast on a lighter note, however, let's switch topics to celebrity Ponzi schemes. Unless you've been living under a rock lately, it seems like we've seen more and more headlines with celebrities either being sued and or implicated in some type of Ponzi scheme. From the recent conviction of Sam Bankman-Fried, the FTX founder whose crypto exchange was formally endorsed by Tom Brady, to DJ Envy's business associates' alleged Ponzi scheme allegations. Fair or foul? Nikki, do you want to start it off? Should consumers be upset when celebrity-endorsed investments don't pan out? You know, I think things are fair. People who have high public profiles, who are part of the zeitgeist and a part of the public conversation, you have to be mindful if your voice will carry. And even if you're not a part of a public persona, you don't really get to scam your family members and people in your communities either. I think oftentimes when we think about these type of financial crimes, particularly Ponzi screens, because there's not this element of of physicality to it, people are a little reluctant oftentimes to see the criminality in that behavior. But I think absolutely um, the emotional abuse that comes with it the abuse of power, um, financial abuse, people need to be held accountable um, for those actions. I'm not very well versed on that individual on Sam Bateman with uh, the FTX conviction. However, I have been keeping up with the whole drama involving DJ Envy, who was a public figure, and the individual who was actually charged is a gentleman named Cesar Pinka who's already served time in federal prison. And I'm not sure how things are going to shake out on DJ Envy. I think his name is Rashawn Casey's on his part, but 
I would just say when you're promoting a business, when you're promoting opportunities, you have to be mindful to make sure you understand the inner workings because ignorance of the law often excuse, and you can very easily be caught into selling this idea to people in your network or your family or your friends. And you can be participating in the party scheme. I've had people I personally know approach me with opportunities and in my mind. I know this is a Ponzi scheme, but for the sake of not welcoming those arguments to myself, I learned how to gracefully bow out. But it's a crime that someone can get lured into participating in. Okay. And hello, what are your thoughts? Fair? Foul? And can you walk us through some of the background of the Sam Bankman-Fried conviction? I guess I would say foul if you're participating in companies or promoting companies that to regular people that turn out to be Ponzi schemes or fraudulent. So that's got to be foul. And with Sam Bankman-Fried, and they call him FBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, we started FTX which was a crypto exchange company. You could buy, sell, trade cryptocurrencies. And he had a second company, Alameda Research, was a crypto hedge fund. So they were solicit investor money to trade cryptos. And I understand buy struggling crypto-related companies and try to buy and sell them or turn them around. And he was promising like 15% on your investment, which is a, a very big number, you know, guaranteeing investors, you're going to get them 15%. And so he's raising all this money and he hired uh, Tom Brady and uh, Shaquille O'Neal and um, Steph Curry, Larry David is tied up into it, who's the creator of Seinfeld. And so they're promoting this FTX company. He had his girlfriend, Sam Bankman-Fried's girlfriend, uh, a lady by the name of Caroline Ellison, who was like a very young 20-something-year-old out of college. Uh, he appointed her CEO of the Alabita company. And so it seemed like they were just kind of these young techies that were able to convince a lot of people to invest in this company. And ultimately, they were charged with fraud. The girlfriend pled guilty and testified against Sam. And the allegations were just simply that they were taking investor money out of FTX and financing lavish lifestyles. They had a compound in the Bahamas and they were living this lavish, fancy lifestyle that allegedly they were using these investor money, sort of the same old story. So he was ultimately convicted seven counts of fraud a week or so ago. So he faces some substantial time in jail. We'll see what happens at sentencing. A lot of the money he getting into FTX, he was donating to political candidates and he put $5 million on the Biden campaign, given to both Republicans and Democrats, dark money, nonprofit organizations. There's all sorts of things caught up in here. There's probably a surface level situation, what we're hearing about. So now the investors are suing these celebrities because FTX is in bankruptcy. And so that process could take 10 years, five years. So now they're going after Tom Brady and, and Shaq and Steph Curry and Larry David in a class action saying, look, you should have known that this was a fraudulent company. 
and you sold it to us investors and we wouldn't have put our money into that if you didn't uh, promote this. And so that's an interesting lawsuit. I'm sure the celebrity is going to say, look, we were just promoting it like the DJ Envy situation. I was just promoting it. I got defrauded too. I wasn't part of the actual company organization. I didn't see the books. I didn't know what was going on. So they're going to make those same arguments. Tom Brady, Shaq, and these people are going to say, we were just endorsers. Like Nike hires the athletes to promote his brand. But I think it will depend on how tied up these uh, celebrities are into the companies. I'm hearing Tom Brady has like $650 million tied up into it. We don't know. And so we'll see. But I think from a fair file standpoint, I would say it's fair for the investors to go after the celebrity to recoup because to an extent you should have known. This sounds like a house of cards. And so you should have done some due diligence before you go out here and sell this to investors. I think it's going to be a tough case for investors to win. But we'll see. Some of the celebrities have already settled. We don't know for how much, but we'll see how this turns out. All right. That sums up today's episode. Thanks to everyone for tuning in to episode three of your morning legal briefing. We've covered a lot of topics today from earlier commission collusion to celebrity Ponzi schemes. Make sure to tune in to next week's episode of our podcast and make sure to like, subscribe, and listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, you can visit our website, Hampton and Hampton LLP. If you're in need of a real estate, estate planning, or personal injury attorney, our team is always here to help. Thanks, everyone. 